Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. So Ben, we're back. We are talking about the Joseph Smith history, kind of the second half. We don't go all the way to the very end, but we are talking about Moroni's visit and Joseph Smith's visit uh, visitations there with Moroni and going up and getting the plates. And man, what a cool story. What a cool story. But as we were talking, I think a lot of this really boils down to focusing a lot uh, on this episode about the scriptures that Moroni quoted. Because that really stood out to me when I was reading them. And then when we were talking beforehand, you had said the same thing that as we were going through and looking through a lot of these scriptures that Moroni had quoted, man, that seemed to really redefine the discussion. And then I ended up thinking we were going to talk about John the Baptist today. <laughs> I, I, but you told me I got a month ahead of myself. We weren't going all the way to the end of Joseph Smith history. We're just going to, uh, to like 65 or so. Yeah, there was like an audible oh, deflated Shiloh there. It's like, oh. I, I was so excited. I wanted to talk about John the Baptist so much. But, uh, you know, it'll happen again in another month or so. <laughs> so we'll get there. We'll get there. But man, what a great story. You know, this is, come, is piggybacking off of our discussion last week when we were doing the First Division. I've studied a little bit of Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell, as we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago, you know, he's this guy who ends up writing this whole hero's journey book, and he talks about the different stages of going through and how human beings tell our story. And man, I've just been fascinated in the last several years about just how much of church history follows the pattern of the hero story. And so if anybody's interested to go look that up, who wants to find out more about it? But what it basically entails is that there's this scholar, Joseph Campbell, and you know, if, if I remember right, he was good friends with Jared Token. And so when they, they would used to go through and talk a lot together as friends as well. But when Joseph Campbell ended up identifying that in all literature, in all literature, that the standard way of telling a story, like the, the most basic element was the same. And so he writes this book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, basically meaning that all hero stories have the same basic process. And we tell these stories in the same way. And you had mentioned, Ben, in the very first uh, episode we did this year, talking about DNC 1, when we were talking about there's no such thing as objective history, that even if the person writing the history down is saying exactly what happened, there is still a bias there by excluding certain things from the story, that one thing was talked about, but another thing was excluded from the narrative. And so what's what's fascinating is in this hero's journey tale is that we end up getting it, it's what story was told it's it's what stories were picked it's what things were actually chosen as part of this narration come to find out they really do fit closely with this whole hero's journey but what that does is that brings us today into what's called the mentor Moroni becomes this mentor but throughout literature we have if you think of like Dumbledore from Harry Potter or like Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings, Yoda from Star Wars, uh, Merlin from King Arthur. 
yeah, Alfred from Bat- Batman, right? So it's you have all of these mentors that come along early on to the person on their adventure. So really, the first vision is this calling to adventure. It really brings Joseph Smith into this new way of being. And he says, basically, he, he gets to being that his life was just not going the way that he really wanted it. And so he goes in to pray. And Moroni appears. And, you know, so we'll get into that. But this uh, this concept of having someone mentor Joseph Smith and really bring him into his own is very well known that Moroni had basically taken Joseph Smith from this early morning experience where he appears three times to Joseph and then the fourth time the next day. And obviously Joseph's not ready. Joseph's not prepared. He goes to get the plates. He's not ready for him. And so he has to come back for the next several years on on the same day, September 22nd, every year afterwards to prepare him, to get him ready, to really coach him, to make sure that his mind and his heart are in the right place. Because, you know, besides the fact that you know, he's just a human being. Joseph's family is also destitute. There's a lot of other factors that are going in. There's a lot of pressures just of being human that, you know, we seek for financial security. And there's a lot of really expensive things buried in this mountain, right? So there's gonna be a lot of uh, temptations that Joseph has. But as we start here in the end of the narrative, we have Joseph really kind of giving his own story about himself. We know that there was a lot of things said about Joseph later on in his life. Of course, this Joseph Smith history is now being written. I think this is 1838 when he's writing this particular narrative. And so he's had at least 10 years of stories being talked about him to have to resolve these things. And there's a lot of people who've gone back and pulled affidavits from Palmyra and have written articles and papers about him trying to show that, mm-hmm. you know, he was a money digger and he was really high, you know, involved in some some pretty rough crowds, you know, which weren't very uh, savory or, you know, that gave him the best reputation. And so he starts to address some of these things, right? I love in verse 28, when he's starting to kind of go back about his life, he says that, you know, during this t- the space of time which intervened between the time I had the vision in the year 1823, having been forbidden to join any of the religious sects of the day and being of very tender years and persecuted by those who ought to have been my friends, and to have ought to have treated me kindly. And if they supposed me to be deluded, to, you know, he thinks they should have endeavored to at least have some kind of proper affection or manner to reclaim him. But yet he was left all to his own kinds of temptations, and he started to mingle with all kinds of society frequently, and he frequently fell into many foolish errors. In other words, I couldn't go to church. God told me I couldn't go to with the church folk, and so who was left for me? They didn't want to be <laughs> around me. So it's just like, Who's left? And so you can see Joseph kind of intermingling with the rough and tumble people of his day. Here we just have him recounting his youth. I don't think anybody who uh, gets to adulthood looks back at their youth and and says, yeah, I did everything right. I didn't do anything (laughs) stupid, you know? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Everybody looks back when they were young and they're like, oh, my goodness, I did all kinds of stupid things. If you don't have those moments, uh, you know, looking back in the past that still make you cringe a little bit, then um, you've repented way more than I have. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, this is an interesting, um, you know, self-confession here for Joseph Smith to make. This is written in 1838 and, you know, something like 15 years after the fact. This is somewhat in response, you know, at the beginning, he says this is a response to all the rumors that that circulate about him. And yeah, like you were saying, there were 
members of the church disaffected that had gone back to Palmyra, one in particular, was it Holbert or something? Anyway, I could go look it up. You can look it up in history. He goes and he he collects uh, from all the neighbors and everything, everything they had to say about Joseph Smith and, and he publishes it. And it it's not really that interesting, honestly. It's more just a character assassination type of thing. All this to say, hey, this kid did this when he was 12 years old. And it's like, how? who cares? <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> Who cares what someone did when they were 12 years old? They were 12 <laughs> years old. <laughs> um, but Joseph Smith uh, did have this reputation uh, among people of of being someone who could find treasure. Now, it's not exactly clear where the reputation came from that he could actually find treasure because prior to, quote unquote, finding the gold plates, he never actually had found any treasure. <laughs> he just did participate in a very common practice of the time, something along the lines of folk magic, where people believed that they could find things by looking into stones. And this sounds super odd and weird and awkward and to us today. But like in the historical context of the time, it was a very common superstition of the people his father believed it. A lot of his friends believed it. Tons of people in the community believed it because as soon as he said that he found gold plates, like people believed that he actually did find gold plates. They were trying to get them from him. And so the the notion that he could find some fine treasure like this wasn't, wasn't far-fetched to a, a good number of people. This was a very common uh, practice and belief of the time. In any case, all of these stories that circulated around trying to assassinate his character, really, they took out of context all of the cultural and folk practices of the time that really would have swept along a 12, 13, 14 year old boy pretty easily. Yeah, I remember going back to, you know, last year, well, I guess this is not last year, it's the year before last. We just we just came into the new year, but in in 2018 I went out with my family and we had the opportunity of flying back to Palmyra and and also we drove down to Kirtland. And in going through we were able to visit the the frame home which was basically higher it was going to be Alvin's home but then you know Hiram takes over, he builds it. It's just a little bit down the street from from the Smith family home that's been rebuilt. And them talking, you know, that when Joseph comes back with the plates, he rushes into this new home and it, it's got kind of this living space or an entertainment space. As you walk in through the front door, it, it comes to your left and there's a fireplace there. And one of the original burying places that Joseph had was in underneath the bricks of this fireplace. So, you know, he, he takes the bricks out and he buries the plates underneath. And the group that he had kind of been around at the time, these people who could find things, whether or not through, you know, uh, witching with a stick or with the, with some rods or dowels or whatever it were, or or with a hat or with a stone or, or however they did it, um, there was one person who actually found it underneath the frame or was in there and was doing their thing, and it pointed to under the hearth where the plates were at. And so I remember going through and the guide was talking about the story, so they... <laughs> They had, you know, they had to usher everybody out real fast, and Joseph had to pull everything up and <laughs> take the plates out again and um, stuff them back in a box and go and, and rehide them. So he's constantly rehiding his place, these plates. But yeah, he had he had befriended some people there who, yeah, were into this traditional 
seeking, you know, kind of this uh, this mystical getting into uh, to be able to find things through uh, divination and, and whatnot. So you see this kind of uh, reputation following Joseph Smith where he goes. Um, one of my other favorite stories there in that house was, you know, he's sitting there at the table with the plates. He sees a mob coming in through the window. He's in the back back room in the kitchen, but you can kind of see through the door of the parlor and where the mobs are coming down from the Smith, from the direction of the Smith family home. And he just has enough time to get the plates off the table, wrap them up. And there's an adjacent room from the kitchen where his sisters are sleeping. And he rushes in there and he basically pulls the covers open, lays the plates down between his sisters and covers them back up and runs back to the kitchen. He's there just seconds after the mob breaks in and starts to ransack the whole house. And they obviously can't find anything because the mob members go into the, the girl's room and they see the two sisters there sleeping and, or at least in bed at this point, they're awake. And then they end up leaving, but the whole time the plays are just they and they tear open everything, but right there in between. So it, it really is interesting looking back on you know Joseph looking back on his own life and and seeing all the different ways that he was able to preserve the plates and how much Moroni here warns him that these things are going to happen. Yeah, I mean it's it's really appropriate kind of going back to Moroni a bit. And I, we are getting a little head on this story here, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> Um, it we is, could talk about whatever we want to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> it is pretty appropriate that Moroni would be the mentor, right? Um, you know, Moroni is uh, what we're told once we read the Book of Mormon. He's the last one that had the plates in his mortality. He's the one that buries the plates. Um, we understand. You know, it's not like he he writes that he buries the plates. He just says that he's he's going to, to hide them up. So we're assume, we assume that, that he's the one that did it. Um, he's the one that buries the plates. Um, and then who knows what happens to him, right? He says he doesn't know. We don't know if Moroni was taken up into heaven. We don't know if he was killed by the Lamanites. We don't know if he died of old age. In any case, when he comes to Joseph Smith here, he, he appears as what we might describe as a resurrected being. So he has died or maybe been translated whatever this this term is that it could be used. We're not told exactly what Moroni's state is, as far as I understand. If somebody has better information on that, I'd be, I'd be interested to hear. But we're not told exactly, you know, what Moroni's state is here. But he's something like a resurrected being and uh, comes to Joseph Smith and has this particular responsibility. And this is interesting. This is an interesting theme throughout Joseph Smith's prophethood that we have prophets returning from the past to restore certain information or what he would term keys or give instruction that are relevant to what they did in mortality. So Moroni has the responsibility of restoring the Book of Mormon because he was the one that was entrusted with the plates. And then Moroni quotes Malachi and says, Elijah is going to come back and restore the priesthood. Elijah had specific responsibilities. And then we have Elijah coming up in Christ's mortal ministry. And then we have the tradition of Elijah among the Jews that he's going to return. So there's all of these things wrapped up with that. Um, we have Moses coming back to Joseph Smith in the Kirtland Temple. And Joseph Smith talks about all kinds of other angels that appeared to him for various purposes. In any case, at this time, until this 1838 account, or at least until I think it was 1835, 
The angel that Joseph Smith references as giving him the plates is not named as Moroni. He simply says an angel. Um, it isn't till later that he identifies him as Moroni. And actually, the angel is mistakenly identified as Nephi. And this is uh, this is often brought up as from critics of the Book of Mormon or Joseph Smith in particular, that he, Joseph Smith, referred to the angel as Nephi. And actually, they've done some research on this, and it's not correct. Joseph Smith never did refer to the angel as Nephi. This was a, a transcription error made by a clerk who was compiling a bunch of notes of Joseph Smith and writing everything down, and the angel wasn't named, and he named the angel Nephi. And then that error got perpetuated because the clerk wrote it down that way. Anyway, I just thought that was kind of an interesting point there. I had never heard the criticism before hearing the explanation. (laughs) Um, In any case, going back to Moroni, again, appropriate that he should be the one to come, right, to do this, to make this restoration of the Book of Mormon to Joseph Smith. And uh, I really wish we had more of an account of what Moroni taught Joseph Smith each year, right? We get little snippets here and there about Moroni having taught, explained to him a little bit about the history and maybe culture of the Nephites, tried to give him a little bit of context about why Moroni personally felt that this record was so important and why he was entrusting it to Joseph Smith and felt like it needed to be brought forth. So I'm kind of trying to get into the head of Moroni a little bit, you know, and imagining all that he went through to try to preserve this record and what he's trying to impart to Joseph Smith about why this thing is so important. I think in a little bit, maybe we can get some evidence for that in exactly what Moroni said. And because we have several different scriptures that when Moroni appears to Joseph, you know, he quotes from Malachi, then he quotes from Isaiah, he quotes from the Acts, he quotes from Joel. And so each one of these, I I don't know how long it's been since I've actually looked these up congruent with me reading this, but in reading those verses, man, it it sends a whole new message as to what Moroni was really intending with all of this. And what I think is fascinating here is also that Joseph pays attention to say that Moroni differed in the way that he quoted from Malachi, but that he read Isaiah and Acts and Joel as they appear in the King James Version. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is very interesting that Moroni is coming down to quote the KJV. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Well, he speaks unto, we talked about this when we talked about section one, right? You know, he speaks unto his servants in their weakness according to their language. This is, this is the scripture that Joseph Smith was familiar with. It spoke to him. He had already knew those verses. It evoked certain understandings. And so, of course, Moroni is going to quote it that way because he's speaking English. And in English, in Joseph Smith's English, right? Not just English in general, but in Joseph Smith's English, that's the way you say those scriptures. So, Right. I, I think that's a, a great explanation as to why he's doing this. And what I like about the differences that we're going to find in Malachi. Now, of course, the Moroni's message, this is section two. This is what appears in section two is Moroni's use of Malachi and the difference here. But he says, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly shall burn as stubble. For they that come shall burn them, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. And again, he quoted the fifth verse, Behold, 
I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he also quoted the next verse differently. And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers, and the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. If it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. Now, we commonly interpret this as the sealing power, right, of being able to seal families together. But what I think is also another fascinating aspect of this that maybe I hadn't pulled out before, and and I've been studying it a little bit with the allegory in Jacob 5 with the olive and with different allegories where there is a burning, right? And so we, we see this here, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and that the wicked are burned as stubble. You know, we've talked a lot about cherubim and the flaming sword, and that fire is always symbolic of a destruction, but it's also at the same time symbolic of a purification. One of the things that really radically changed a lot of the way that I view this is when we were studying in Ammonihah. If you remember all the way back when we start first started doing this, I think it's in uh, in verse 14. You know, it may, um, I'm going to go back a little bit further than that. If you remember in Alma chapter 9, it talks about the glory of God. We talked about this quite a bit when we were doing that. And it says, And not many days hence the Son of God shall come in his glory, and his glory shall be the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, equity, and truth, patience, mercy, and the long-suffering, quick to hear the cries of his people and to answer their prayers. Now, when I read that through, it had never stood out to me that way before, because first off, when we think of Jesus Christ coming for the first time in Bethlehem in a, in a manger, you know, we just went through the Christmas season, the whole thing that we talk about is about the humble beginnings of Christ. And yet here, Alma is saying that not many days come hence when the Son of God shall come in his glory. And so this is not the kind of glory that we're often thinking about that's portrayed in these pictures and of, of you know, magnificent, you know, these magnificent scenes. This glory, he's coming down with these qualities, grace, equity, truth, patience, mercy, this was the glory that he came in on his first coming. And so when we talk about this whole coming again and he's going to come again and reveal himself, we see this burning as like this worldwide destruction of like the wicked are kind of like burned off into like fiery flames and they're like, they're just devoured, right? <laughs> this, very, this very violent scene where we finally feel like the wicked get theirs and the righteous are justified. And then all of a sudden there's peace because there are no bad people. And we know there's no bad people because God's the one that killed all the bad people. And then we have peace. But as I've gone through and I've studied a lot of these allegories and the symbolism behind them, especially in how they worked with the agriculture back in the days that they were talking about these things in ancient Israel. But when they used to burn the wheat and the chaff, right? When they used to burn all of the bad branches of the olive trees, they would then use all of this ash and they would use all of these things basically to reintegrate it back into the soil for the fertilizer for the things to be able to grow. And this knowledge is common to the people who were living back then. It's not common knowledge to us today. So we never really get that aspect of the story. But that, that's like an implied aspect that the wicked then are used as as this, you know, this, this ash, it's everything that's left behind the purging. And so when we read here that the day's coming that's going to burn as an oven, yea, the proud and the, the do weekly shall burn as stubble, I can't help but think of President Kimball's false gods we worship message 
where he says that we will take the gospel to our enemies, that they are no longer our enemies. We take the message to the people so that they are no longer enemies to God. That that false self that we have, that we've lived in, that society inculcates us with, that we become informed by and that informs our lives, we finally find a way to let that go. And that whole symbolic process is a purging, and that's where the fire comes in. And so you can see here when he says that the seeds planted with the hearts of the children, the promises made to the Father, yes, that's the priesthood ordinance, and we do those things in the temple. But I think from a, uh, a more realistic perspective, at least a more practical perspective in our everyday, what we're seeing is that this is being sent to repair and heal the false traditions of the fathers being passed down to the children, that the children are able to then take that generational suffering that keeps on getting passed down, and they no longer pass on that generational suffering, because at some point that that pain is going to get passed down generation to generation. Those traditions are going to get passed down generation to generation until there is a generation who is willing to endure the pain without passing it on. And when that happens and those traditions and those ways of doing things cease, it's a way of being able to heal the line that has come before it. It's like, it's like this, this dominant, this generational domino, and it's happened since Cain. You know, that's the whole power of the reading the Bible as a, as a narrative and like a myth narrative. As we begin to see the scriptures are talking symbolically of these ideas and the, and, and kind of these meta narratives that we assume and we live by in our civilization and our society. And these are the narratives that we live by that have always prohibited us from ever being able to build Zion. So when you come and you recognize that God's finally coming down to destroy root and branch of these false traditions and narratives to be able to purify all of these things that have ever been into this new single moment when all of a sudden the future generations will then be able to take that suffering and endure it, just like Christ did on the cross and only return good for evil, that all of a sudden you see that there's this whole generational uh, purging that's going on and that we're able to finally heal the family of God. So that is very close to the way that I've been viewing these verses. Um, uh, a lot of the little things that I jotted down as I was looking through this and listening to you talk. So this reference here in verse 37, to leave them neither root nor branch. Um, so if, if we visualize what we call a family tree, right? You know, we have branches that go up and the roots that go down. And, and this is a metaphor that is consistent with um, the way that anciently they talked about descendants and ancestors. Now, burning them up, leaving neither root or branch, doesn't mean you will be disconnected from your actual ancestors or from the people. But just like you said, this is a way of getting rid of the false traditions and stopping the progression of that into future generations. It's a type of emptying, right? This is burning off the excess. This is cutting off the false self and returning back to, in the Jacob allegory, the, uh, the tame fruit right, of the tree, the actual natural tree that has the good fruit that comes from it. And so here we have root or branch. And then in the very next verses, it's talking about fathers and children and promises between them. And how is this all linked together? Through the priesthood. And we talk about the priesthood in terms of, of keys and ordinances, which is fine. 
But those are simply symbolic of something else. And what are they symbolic of? They're symbolic of true relationships. And how do those relationships fit with what we're talking about here? Well, because our relationship with each other is analogous um, to our relationship with God, right? What are the great commandments? Love God, love your neighbor. And so our relationships to each other, with especially within families where the understanding and the love and the, the concept of a parent and a child as such is passed down is the way that that is also uh, symbolized to, to our relationship with our Heavenly Father, with God. And so looking at these keys and ordinances and covenants that we make symbolically to represent these relationships and these links um, all the way back to our ancestors is symbolically representing how we need to be united with God as well. And so here I think it's interesting that he uses the word priesthood because um, 1823 Joseph really didn't have any concept of priesthood. In fact, the concept of priesthood as such didn't really get uh, voiced and developed as a church doctrine until several years after the organization of the church. I mean, you had John the Baptist and Peter, James, and John come and ordain Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, but they didn't, they didn't use the concept of priesthood um, or that that idea wasn't developed and fully revealed, and Joseph Smith didn't really understand it like we may see it now, and and like we have these revelations of the doctrine and covenants and how we practice it and and talk about it doctrinally in the church. That that wasn't a thing in 1823, much you know, or not even a thing in 1830, uh, much less 1823. And so for him to to put this word in here in when he's looking back on it in 1838. I wonder <clears throat> I wonder what Moroni actually said. Now I'm not I'm not doubting that he said priesthood, but um it's possible that he said it in a way that 1823 Joseph um understood it one way and 1838 Joseph looking back on this experience says, "Oh, that's what he was talking about. <laughs> I totally had no idea what you were talking about, Moroni, you know? And so, like, maybe he did use the word priesthood. Maybe he didn't. But 1838, Joseph understands this verse when Moroni is talking about it to mean priesthood. And there is some some depth here that I don't know if we're really going to ever get into because the concept of, of the priesthood, as we see outlined, and, and I take my definition of priesthood from Doctrine and Covenants 121. That's been our operating sort of definition and go-to for what we're talking about when we talk about priesthood. Um, I take it in this context to, to mean how we develop relationships with others, and we do it through love and persuasion and gentleness and, and charity. And all of those things that are that describe priesthood and how we're supposed to act in it, um, and the the keys and authority of the priesthood as exercised and used in the church are symbolic of that, and they're supposed to point us to that experience, and that's what we should be looking for them to do. And so, just as 
when we when we talk about these verses and we say, oh, this is talking about the temple, it's like, yes, it's it's talking about the same thing that the temple's talking about. It's right. it's not talking about the temple as such. It's talking about the same thing that the temple's talking about, right? This isn't pointing us to the temple. This is pointing us to the same thing that the temple's pointing us to. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, uh, th- like I said, there's a lot of depth here. Um, th- the verses here are so beautiful to me, especially 39. He shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers, and the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. If it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted in his coming. So, here I take to mean the fathers. I would almost capitalize that. So 1838 Joseph is looking at this and he's because he's steeped in more of a concept of priesthood and patriarchy than he is in 1823. Um, we've got the book of Abraham. Um, I don't think it's come up at this point, but at least these ideas are forming in, in Joseph Smith's theology and he's receiving revelations that are starting to fill this stuff out. So he's understanding it more all the time. And so this concept of the fathers, we're talking about the ancient patriarchs. Well, what promises were made to them, particularly Abraham? But then Joseph Smith's theology gets into the fact that all these promises were made to all the patriarchs before and after Abraham as well. The gospel is is eternal. It's revealed, um, you know, the same concepts in, in every dispensation. <clears throat> so when he's talking about the promises made to the fathers, he's talking about all these covenants that they made and these experiences that they had with God. And so it, what's going to be planted in our hearts, the hearts of the children, you know, who, that were here are the same covenants and experiences that the ancient people had. And then once we see that and understand that, we will understand that their experiences aren't so different from what we are experiencing now. We're just in a different cultural context. And once we see that, we'll see that God is our is the father of all of us, of all the children of men throughout all times, and that he simply speaks to us within our culture and understanding, just like we, we talked about with section one, <clears throat> according to our language. And I think that in and of itself, I mean, that's probably just a small sliver of, of some of the depth here, shows us the character of God. It starts revealing unto us the character of God. And that's why when our hearts turn to our fathers, it helps unite us because then we're having that same experience as our experience with uniting with God. It kind of fills out that whole theology there of us being one with each other, with our, our ancestors and our descendants as a an experience that points us to being one with God. Yeah, there's so much there that I love, Ben. I love everything that you just said. In this, to, to add to that, where it talks about this, if it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted in his coming. With all of these things that talk about the destruction of things, I always wonder if this is a metaphysical or an epistemic distinction. Is this talking about reality, like a physical destruction, or is this talking about like repentance? It's learn. It's it has. It's almost purely epistemic, where it just deals with our perceptions. It's seeing God new. It's seeing, it's seeing the world around us in a new filter, in a new way. And so when I look here at this, 
if it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. We typically take these verses in a literal metaphysical way, and we have this imagery, you know, and it comes from the book of Revelation, and it comes from, you know, a lot of different scriptures that talk about the end of days and, and the destruction, not much unlike this one um, here. And we tend to think that, okay, so the world is going to get really bad. And then we're always questioning, like, how bad is bad? And is it going to get really, really bad or just like really bad? But if it's really, like, really, really, really bad, then there's like this almost like this incentive. We'll just let, let it keep on getting bad, right? Because then, you know, it's just going to make Jesus come faster. And if I've heard that once, I've heard it a thousand mm-hmm. times, right? Especially in politics is like, oh, well, let that guy get elected. Jesus will come faster. But what if the point, what if that's not, what if it has nothing to do with it? What if instead the point of Jesus Christ coming again in his glory, and again going back to Alma 9, what if him coming back in his glory that full of grace and equity and truth? The point of the matter is that Jesus won't come back when it's so bad that he has to, because I never know what that has to means. We, we talk about that rather loosely in our doctrines about, you know, Jesus has to come back. Well, you know, the world has been really, really, really bad before, and there's been some really, 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 really bad things happening uh, and, and happen. And I, I don't know like how much worse it can get, because if you look around the world right now today, it, it's not half bad. In fact, things are actually getting better in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. In fact, we have less, uh, less killing, less war than we've had in a long time. Um, the deaths from that, we have we have longer lives. We have less fewer diseases than we've, we've had fewer people dying from diseases. We have more people out of abject poverty than we've ever had before. In so many metrics, we are actually doing better than humanity has ever done before. That's correct. And in fact, when we say that, well, it's more wicked than it ever has before. N- no, 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 not really. I mean, in what way? I mean, people say, well, sexually. And so we can talk about like sexual sins. Well, that's highly subjective based on different cultures. Just go read some Roman history. That is not true. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I I think if a lot of these people were just to take a glance at like old Greek history or Roman history, they'd be like, oh my goodness, never mind. (laughs) Just because it's just the way we look at it. And so when I actually think like, what is the actual point here of Christ's coming? is that he is waiting for a people to come back to. He is waiting for a Christ-centered people to come back to. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, what's the point? Is he just, he just going to come down and kill all the wicked and then let that be that? Like that, That's a very nearsighted, myopic way of thinking. But what if, instead, the point is for us to learn how to leave behind all of the narratives, the egos, the identities, all of these very myopic, short-sighted views, limited views that we have of this physical life, and we are to enter into through that whole beatitude process of the emptying, come into this relationship with God, to be the salt of the earth. These beatitude people who are having experiences with God that you cannot put words to. Now, in this way, if you have people actually having real divine experiences in the flesh, and this kind of reminds me of Moroni, like, you know, if you're not seeing miracles, it's because you're not having faith. These things, these divine experiences are supposed to be happening. But they said, if Jesus comes and no one's emptying, what's the point? 
it's an utterly wasted moment. It's an utterly wasted point in time. There's no purpose. There's no point to it. Why this time? If you were to come tomorrow, why? Like, like, like what's going to happen tomorrow? I mean, okay, besides the American elections and everything that's going on there, everybody's, you know, that. But when we really look objectively at what's going on, why would Jesus come tomorrow? You know, there's no major threat that's going to happen. No one's going to bust down your door and kill you tomorrow. There's no, there, there's none of that going on. I mean, even the early Christians, when, when it was outlawed in Rome and they were coming after and killing Christians, Jesus didn't come then. So even if that was happening to us to date, Jesus isn't coming. Why is he postponing this, as it were? And if he comes and the generations are not healed, if they're not going through the beatitude process, if this is, if this healing of the human line and of the false identities and the traditions that we pass on, if, if this is not happening, then, then what does it even mean, mean or matter that he comes? Mm-hmm. But the fact is, is that the point is now to heal the human family, to bring this into a new way of being. And it's in that new way of being that we create that now, now there's something special to come back to. It's not that we've killed and obliterated all of our enemies. It's how we've learned how to live amongst our enemies so that we can either self-sacrifice and, and to be there with them, or that we can then be able to destroy and preach the gospel to them to, so that they're no longer our enemies. We basically destroyed them by converting them, right? And when we take that view, all of a sudden, Isaiah and Acts and Joel completely and totally make sense. They do. Yeah, I was pulling up those scriptures and kind of browsing them again just to, to make sure I was familiar with, with what they're saying. And and uh, it is amazing in that context. You know, it's it's great that Moroni starts with that that idea of, hey, we're the purpose of this is to heal the human family. We're going to bring everyone together and we're going to do that through the priesthood. And because this is the power of Christ. And then he goes on to quote all these other passages that are about Christ, specifically about Christ. I think it's interesting here. He says in Acts is the one where it said, for Moses truly said unto the fathers, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of our of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. <clears throat> now we can, you know, go on and on again about the destroyed from among the people, but it just goes back to your point about about what we really are talking about when we say destroyed and what the Lord means when he says that. But here, Moroni comments on this verse, and he says that the prophet was Christ, but the day had not yet come when they who would not hear his voice should be cut off from among the people, but soon would come. This is a fascinating commentary on this because I would have thought, well, when Christ came the first time, if you didn't listen to him, right, then you were cut off. Well, that's actually true. And whenever Christ comes to you if you don't listen to him. You're cut off. Not because Christ cuts you off, you cut yourself off. You're turning away from that. And so I see this as an individualistic type of prophecy. See, and he's talking to Joseph Smith. The day will soon come for anyone, for any person, 
that if they won't listen to Christ, that they will be cut off. They won't be able to continue um, in terms of their spiritual progression or however you want to term it. Because there's going to come a point in their life when they're going to have to accept that way, the way of Christ, and they'll have a choice whether to follow him or not. Again, I don't see this as this like global type of ultimatum that is given. Okay, everybody has to follow Jesus or you're done. This is actually an individual type of of ultimatum that we give ourselves in the moment when we have the choice to follow Christ. And it happens to us over and over again. In fact, this might happen to us every day based on what is it that we are choosing to follow today. That prophecy is much more profound when taken on an individual level. We go into these other prophecies that talk about Christ, and they're all in this context of, hey, we just quoted Malachi, and this is specifically what we mean by it. And then how is the way that this is going to be accomplished? By Christ. And here's all these prophecies that refer to how this is going to happen through Christ. You know, going back to this concept of turning the the hearts of the children to the or plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers, and the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. Whenever I hear that anymore, I just my mind always goes to Doctrine and Covenants section ninety eight, um, because I've always loved the verse here in verse sixteen where it says, "Therefore renounce war, and proclaim peace, and seek diligently." to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. And it just says so much about this concept of healing the human family and and bringing people together within a society that is going to prepare for the coming of Christ, not in a, a way to avoid destruction, but in a way to receive him. And be able to experience his presence. Yeah. You know, as you were talking about there, especially in Acts, you know, it says there in verse 22, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren. You know, this prophet is Christ. And this verse for me, it's very much this whole passing of the torch that Jesus was considered the new Moses, right? The time that that transfer happens is in the Sermon on the Mount. That's when Jesus stands up as the new Moses. You have heard it hath been said this, but I say unto you this. Yeah, he's the new lawgiver. And what Jesus is doing is that he's coming in to basically, there was like an apostasy with the law where everything since the law of Moses, they they had basically deified the law itself. And they had polluted it, and they had started to think that the law was the point, as opposed, like just like you were saying, Ben, about the temple. You know, the temple also points us to something else. Everything points to the temple, but the temple also points us to this other thing. And so, when we start to look at the symbol and not the referent, you know, we're going to have problems. And so, in this, I see this whole Moses and talking about Christ, that Christ is that new Moses, and the new Moses comes in and his doctrine is now the Sermon on the Mount, 
So when you talk about renounce war and proclaim peace so that we can be able to heal these generations, we can be able to have this kind of healing. And this has everything to do that Moroni is connecting all of these things together for us that we begin to realize that now the person bringing this message forward of how to renounce war and proclaim peace is Jesus Christ. And the message that he brings is talking about the transference of the Moses knowledge to the Christ knowledge in the Sermon on the Mount. And we begin to see how is this peace established? What's everything that we're talking about with, with the Beatitudes and that Sermon on the Mount? It's how to transform ourselves so that we can start to recognize the false self from the real self. And I love that right after Moroni is talking about this whole world being utterly wasted at his coming, the first thing he quotes from is Isaiah. You know, so what kind of world are we going to be living in where where this whole world is going to be utterly wasted at his coming? What kind of thing is this? Well, yes, Jesus Christ has come to give us this message, but then chapter 11 in Isaiah is just talking about Zion. I mean, this mm-hmm. is like one of the most famous chapters on Zion. What is this society supposed to be, this community that you're creating that is now transforming and healing and coming out from obscurity, from the, the, the narratives and the meta-narratives of how civilizations have been based and built from the beginning through violence and through coercion and through manipulation and through power? But we're going to show you how it's based upon by persuasion and by long-suffering and gentleness, and meekness, and love unfeigned, all things without any compulsory means. How do you have a government? How do you have a system of order that does not result in coercion and violence? And then this is the question about how does the priesthood of God actually work? But yet we live and operate with all of the governments of men under this concept that violence and coercion are necessary a priori. There, even before really any experience, these are these are universal accepted axioms of how we live. But yet it says here in Isaiah, and it talks about again about the, the rod that will come out of the stem of Jesse and the branch. We're talking about those branches again that we were talking about originally here. And he says, but with righteousness shall, the, shall he judge the poor, this is Christ, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. There again, there's the Beatitudes coming out again. And he shall smite the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. All right, now this is so beautiful. You know, it's not that God speaks it and all of a sudden everybody's destroyed, but the rod of his mouth, the that rod of iron, he comes out with the commandments and he comes forth with the breath of his lips. I just wrote an article today for uh, for Latter-day Peace Studies where we talk, and I bring in this conversation that we uh, we did during Advent when I was talking about I am as a name of God. Now, I am comes from this Hebrew understanding. It almost means to breathe. And what happened was is that uh, in this article, I talk about God as a cloud. And we talk about how in the Exodus narrative and in the in the Jaredite narrative in the Book of Mormon, they follow a cloud into the wilderness, and they follow this cloud through the wilderness into the promised land. And this is very allegorical and very uh, very very symbolic that we follow God as a cloud because the cloud is always symbolic of the unknown. You know, Jesus tells the woman at the well, "You follow, you know not what, and you worship, you know not what." And in a lot of ways, we worship this God whose nature we don't know about. It's this ill-defined ideal. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's 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 we we think we have an idea of God, but yet repentance by the very definition is that we have to learn to see God differently. We have to learn to see him not as what the man thinks and then projected onto him, but who he actually really is. And in this repentance process we begin to realize that when he breathes forth this this the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, God, when Moses came before the the burning bush and he asks who God is, he wants a defined God. He realizes he's going to have to go back to Egypt to be able to say, you know, here's my God. This is who he is. This is what his name is. This is what his power is. This is what authority is. Mm-hmm. Here's all the definition of God. And what God tells Moses is, I am. I am that I am. I breathe. I am that which exists. He doesn't give Moses this definitive answer as to who he is. And so the whole symbolism here in connecting it is that then he comes into the strongest government of men at the time with the biggest military that they are slaves to. They have no power to be able to take themselves out of slavery, but God delivers them. And they follow God as a vapor, as a cloud, as an unknown entity, something that they don't. So that when they come to the base of Sinai and they create the golden calf, they're wanting a defined God. You know, this golden calf is not uh, an image from Egypt. It's not an Egyptian God. They're trying to create an embodiment of Yahweh in the desert, a God that they can see, that they can form after their own ideas, that they can see with their eyes and feel with their hands and that has form and function. Because following a cloud is just, sometimes that takes too much faith. But when we see here that God breathes and with his lips he slays the wicked, we begin to realize this whole bringing the gospel to our enemies that they are no longer our enemies. And it's in this moment that Isaiah finds fulfillment that the righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and the faithfulness the girdle of his reins. It's the righteous that go out. And I love that you brought in section 98, Ben, because we've talked about that in the war chapters, about section 98, that when you're attacked once, you got to bear it patiently. You're attacked twice, you got to bear it patiently. You're attacked three times, you got to bear it patiently. But then in that time, God can tell you, that it, he can command you to say, it's okay to defend yourself now. But if you turn the other cheek, even after you've been allowed and, and commanded to go out, if you turn the other cheek three times, then it's counted to for you as righteousness. And we're talking about the righteous here. The righteous are the ones to girdle their, the, the girdle of his loins and the faithfulness and the girdle of his reins. That the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and the little child shall lead them and the cow and the bear shall feed their young ones and shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in any in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is Moroni's message. <laughs> this this is what Moroni is giving to this boy in the attic of this little itty bitty room up in upper state New York. This is the message that's coming in that frames the entire context of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the healing of the generations and the bringing forth of this community of Zion where all of these things have to be. And the way we do that 
is through the Sermon on the Mount. You know, I, Joseph, 17-year-old Joseph Smith at this time, you know, this is basically a spiritual fire hose, right? <laughs> <laughs> And and I cannot I cannot believe uh, just I, I've been trying to study more of, of Joseph Smith lately. I can't believe that at this time his mind even scratched the surface as to what was really in store. You know, he prayed for a forgiveness of his sins because he joked around with his friends too much, and then here comes Moroni and is like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, like, here's all this spiritual knowledge. This is what's going to happen." And so, like, Joseph Smith is receiving all this. Moroni's got to tell it to him four times um, over the course of, of these different visits. Four times within that 24-hour period, right? The 12-hour period, maybe. And, you know, to, to try to get it, get him to remember it sensibly. I'm not sure exactly what was the purpose of this, but uh, to really ingrain this in his mind. Um, but... Really being able to process that and what it is Moroni is talking about and why he's saying all of these things, um, you know, that's another discussion to have. Like, why, why this method? Why is Moroni doing it this way? Coming three times in the middle of the night, not letting Joseph Smith sleep. He goes out to work and then he's so tired, he just falls and faints on a fence and Moroni comes to him and tells him all the other things again. He Moroni doesn't even like try to help him up or say, are you okay <laughs> or anything, you know, like he's just like, Hey Joseph, I, I'm going to tell you all the same things all over again. Wake up. <laughs> um, so, so that's, that's something I haven't pondered before. In fact, I never even considered the concept uh, before. I'm going to have to think about this and I'd like to get your thoughts if you have any, and then other people's thoughts as they're listening to this. Why this way? Um, why is Moroni de- choosing to deliver his message in this way to Joseph Smith? Um, and I just wonder, you know, this is 1838, Joseph Smith, as I'm saying, writing this, and he's reflecting back on these experience. He's had all these years of revelations and development of theology and, and, and understanding in the meantime. So he's able to look back on them and, and really kind of pull out some stuff from them that he probably had no idea what was going on at the time. And so, again, yeah, why this way of, of delivering this message? You know, when we look at the what the message actually is, young Joseph is not getting the point. In fact, Joseph doesn't even get the point about the gold plates, right? It's, it's all of this great doctrinal stuff, sure. But then when you're given a vision about gold plates— and you're, you've lived your life so far in the, with the community that he was forced into because God told him not to go join any other churches. And basically, probably the only people left are these people who he's hanging out with now that are going out and treasure hunting and seeking. And he sees these gold plates. Now, that transfixes his mind. And I wonder how much and how long it took for this to happen. Because we, we're going to talk a lot about Zion's camp when Zion's camp happens you know, throughout the year. And just the concepts that they learn on Zion's camp and what God was trying to teach them in sections 101 and 103 and 105, when we really try to see that the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes are going to come back again in those moments explicitly, and we start to see that this message is repeated over and over and over again, and yet Zion's camp, it started off, they had no idea what they were getting into. This was not really 
the Lord's army of going out with strength and power and honor in a Sermon on the Mount type of way. So when I look at how this message is being delivered, number one, I'm really impressed that Joseph remembers exactly what scriptures were used, and especially the the different verbiage used there for, uh, for Malachi. And maybe it's as you said, Ben, Joseph got the original idea, and <laughs> he looks back from 1838, Joseph, he's like, oh... Yeah, that's the priesthood. Okay. He summarized, maybe that happens, however that is. But I think that this type of delivery, really for 17-year-old Joseph in upper state New York, in this kind of way, especially when we have the evidence of how he had to come back again for four times to get the plates, repetition may be something Joseph needed. Maybe it was for Joseph's benefit that this kept on coming back again and again and again and again. And now that we have it, maybe it's for us. The repetition is key and gives us a good evidence that, hey, maybe this is important. Because even when we come to Joel, you know, that's the last verse that, uh, that Moroni quotes. And it's from Joel chapter 2, 28 until the end of the, end of, end of the chapter, uh, there with verse 32. But it reads, and this is a very famous prophecy for the end of days, and it's used and evoked a lot. And in fact, we're going to read something President Hinckley had to say about it. And it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall, shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth and blood and fire and pillars of smoke. And the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, this sign, this is one of the most famous end of day signs that have ever been given, right? And so surprise me when I am off my mission and 9-11 happens. And after 9-11 happens, I remember turning in and thinking, man, the most important thing, place I want to be right now is at conference listening to the prophet to see what he has to say about the 9-11 attack, right? So this is October 2001 in the very first talk of conference, and the name of the, the talk is called Living in the Fullness of Times. I'm going to quote here from President Hinckley, and this is... uh let me see here. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it. It's one, two, three, four. It's the fourth paragraph down. The era in which we live, he says, is the fullness of times spoken of in the scriptures when God has brought together all of the elements of previous dispensations. From the day that he and his beloved son manifested themselves to the boy Joseph, there has been a tremendous cascade of enlightenment poured out upon the world. The hearts of men have turned to their fathers in fulfillment of the words of Malachi. That's crazy. So the hearts of men have turned their fathers in the fulfillment of the words of Malachi. The vision of Joel has been fulfilled, wherein he declared, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And then he just went to quote Joel that I just read. President Hinckley said in October 2001 that the vision of Joel has been fulfilled. Now, this is one of the most popular end of days prophecies. I don't know how this was fulfilled. I don't know where this was fulfilled. This is why one of those things, and when we look at this and we're trying to look at the end of days fulfillment with our human eyes, 
And we're trying to think about like, you know, is the next blood moon, is that what he's talking about? You know, this, Mm -hmm. this, this blood moon hasn't happened for the, you know, 500 years. And I've heard that so many times now. I'm like, all right, whatever. But (laughs) on this particular moment, he's talking about these prophecies being fulfilled already. There's always been wonder. There's already been wonders in heaven and in the earth and blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Apparently, that's already happened, according to President Hinckley. And so there in the very last verse of Joel chapter 2 that Moroni quotes, he says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord hath said, and unto the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Again, we're talking about Zion again. We have the Isaiah version of Zion. We have the Joel version of Zion. We have Acts that talks about the new Moses that's going to come, and his whole message is in becoming the new Moses is the Sermon on the Mount. And then we have Malachi here that Moroni opens with, where he talks about healing the generations and connecting the generations together so that when Christ does come, it actually means something. There's actually something there for him to come back to. And man, I don't know why he had to come by four times. Maybe it had to be because of Joseph Smith. The fact that he came this way and he said these things, that is powerful and really heavy stuff. Another interesting aspect of his visits is he comes, gives a little bit, goes away, comes, repeats that, adds a little bit, goes away, comes, repeats everything. So it's almost like it's almost like this memorization type of routine. I don't know the way you do it, but like when I would memorize stuff, I would, you know, you start and you memorize the first sentence and then you repeat that and, you know, memorize a second sentence and so forth. And so there's almost like a pattern of memorization to get him to, to especially those very first things that he's talking about. Those are going to be ingrained in, in Joseph Smith's mind. And then he adds a little bit each time. He tells Joseph Smith in the, the last part of the visits during the night that Satan was going to try to tempt him He says, in consequence of the indigent circumstances of my father's family, to get the plates for the purpose of getting rich. This he forbade me, saying that I must have no other object in view in getting the plates but to glorify God, and must not be influenced by any other motive than that of building his kingdom, otherwise I could not get them. So, I saw saw a different, or an additional principle in this. First off is is the historical uh, concept here uh, just from this is that when Joseph Smith did actually go and physically find the plates, um, in this account we don't have it, but he, he writes other accounts of this and he talks about how when he went, when he saw the plates, his he was tempted. His initial inclination was to grab them. Uh, because he had just struck gold, right? And so he actually, he sees the plates and in verse 53, it says, I made an attempt to take them out, but was forbidden. 
Well, <laughs> in another account, it wasn't just forbidden. It says that he like was shocked <laughs> and like he couldn't he couldn't get them. Um, I don't know if that's like he physically couldn't move or if like, you know, it was just like he was grasping it at straws type of thing. You know, he couldn't couldn't physically grasp them, couldn't physically hold on to them. Um, but going back to this verse 46, um, I, I like this last part. It says, I must have no other object in view in getting the plates, but to glorify God and must not be influenced by any other motive than that of building his kingdom. Otherwise, I could not get them. So I see in this um, a principle of teaching about priestcraft that there's when whenever we're seeking like a, a spiritual understanding um, or particularly when we're looking at scripture. So um, <clears throat> and we're looking to profit from scripture intellectually um, that we should the object in our mind is what it says here the building up of the kingdom. Otherwise, so much of what we might uh, glean or pull from it is not going to be to our benefit. We won't get them, right? We won't get it. We won't get um, the true point or message of Scripture unless we have this uh, no other object in view in getting but to glorify God. So, uh, I don't know if I'm explaining what I'm meaning so well, but I think that uh, it has to do with our the attitude by, of which by which we approach Scripture. And if we approach it with the attitude of glorifying God, and it says here of building up his kingdom, then I think that that's how, that's one of the ways that we can actually profit from Scripture greater than just approaching it as some sort of like intellectual exercise or just doing it uh, because we're supposed to read our scriptures, right? Yeah, I love that. In fact, there's a really great uh, correlation into the the scripture that's in the Sermon on the Mount and in Jacob about before you seek for riches, seek for the kingdom of God. And I've I've, I've pondered on that a lot. And I've, we've talked about it, I think, a little bit before on previous podcasts. But I, I've had this experience in my life where I realized that most of my life, what I thought I was acting on faith was actually acting on fear. And so I started to recognize in my own ways of being that there is a breath of difference between living by faith and living by fear. And one of the ways that that manifests itself in my life, and that, that I'm still trying to find ways that uh, I want to live by faith and I want to have a faithful life, was in being able to provide for my family. And, you know, so, you know, we can store away and we're, we're told to store away for a rainy day and to be wise with our money and, you know, to put a little bit into savings so that if the bad things in life happen that we, you know, that we can be taken care of. And there's nothing wrong with that way of being. But what I found is that I had started to look at the way that I provided and I was going out and working my hardest and being able to bring money and stability and security to my family. I realized that I was working to hedge against bad things happening as opposed to just simply just being and creating and having good things and, and creating good things that I could bring to the world. And so I, 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 at one point I remember stopping and thinking like, well, then how, how do I can, how can I make sure that I'm living by, by faith? And what's fascinating about Jesus's way of saying this is he says, before you seek for riches, seek for the kingdom of God, seek to build the kingdom of God, because you can't build the kingdom of God through fear. 
you can only build the kingdom of God through faith. Then once you have that knowledge of how to actually act by faith, then go out into the world and then do your acts. Because then you're going to realize that once you have money, you're not going to be afraid of having to keep and hoard it all to yourself. And then when you get wealth, then you'll be able to spend it on on the poor. And then you'll actually get money to be able to help the poor and to help the needy. And to, and, and, and you're giving it away because there's no more fear that you're living in against this unknown rainy day, right? And so I think in a lot of ways, this is the same principle that Joseph's having to learn. It's this whole building the kingdom of God before you before you go out and you make money. And as you know, Saints is really good at talking about this, the volume one of Saints, in how it talks about Joseph always having to struggle with this. And we know that the Smith family really does struggle with an identity, especially from Joseph Smith Sr. You know, he he was by all accounts a failure in his life in how he provided for his family. Lucy Mac Smith came from a very wealthy family, and she was given a very healthy uh, dowry. And, and so, when her when she got was married, you know, she received a lot of money from that. And you know, saints begins when you know the the volcano that happens <laughs> over in Asia, and then we end up having this. You know, it put off so much debris into the atmosphere that the next year it was known as the year without a summer. Because all of those partic- particles and debris ended up blocking out the sun. And so they had like snow that came all the way into June and July. And so it was, it, it destroyed all of the crops. And this was the one year up in Vermont where Joseph Smith Sr. had been planting his crops, getting ready to, to really make his stake and his fame. He'd thrown all of his eggs in this one basket and then boom, the year without a summer hits and he loses everything. And so now for the rest of his life, Joseph Smith Sr. has to basically go out and part himself and labor himself out and his sons. And so that family reputation, they were a very proud family. And so you can see this the, the whole way that Joseph was was raised in this very kind of very proud, dignified uh, way of being. His mother was, you know, Lucy Mac Smith, man, was she a powerhouse? Just to read her own biography of, you know, the history of Joseph Smith by his mother, just you can tell just how fiery she was and, and how and how much life she had in her. But yet Joseph Smith Sr. seems to get beaten down by life a lot. And sometimes he even turns to alcohol. And so Joseph and his sons are always Joseph and Joseph Smith's senior's sons, Joseph Smith Jr. and his brothers, mm-hmm. however, had always maintained a true respect of their father. And had always really tried to lift their father up and to take care of their father and to respect him, even though he felt in a lot of ways, and a lot of the biographies talk about how he saw himself. So when you add even that mix to it, into who Joseph is, when he's reaching down there for the plates and he sees these plates, it's not just the standard you know, layers of poverty like I can get rich. There's a whole family narrative also written into this that Joseph never really escapes you know, he's never wealthy. A lot of his business ventures fail. He's consistently living with other people. Man, Emma had to go through so much. And then finally, when they get to Nauvoo, you can almost see like, we finally have a home. We finally have stability. But then Joseph Smith's home becomes like a boarding place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just, anybody and everybody can come and stay. Here. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And so you can see that one of the reasons why Emma never comes with the saints, besides the fact that her and Brigham just 
eternally don't like each other. Maybe they, <laughs> may, maybe they've made up. I don't know. But it's just her life had been so hard. And so finally she's there in Nauvoo and she just, it is what it is. And yeah. so Joseph never gets wealthy. He never actually makes his stand in life as a businessman. And I think it's brilliant what, uh, what jo- with the very first thing that one of the very first things that Moroni says to Joseph, your name is going to be had for good and evil. And it's not going to be in the ways that you think. <laughs> but hmm. yeah, Joseph is it, it, to the world. Joseph Smith was a failure, but praise to the man. So uh, this, the story goes on here and. After all of this time, you know, he, he goes back there every year. So this is something like three years later um, that he gets the plates. And he gets the plates, but then he can't do anything with them for a time because people are constantly trying to get them away from him. And he doesn't really know what to do with them. He knows he's supposed to translate them and that these Urim and Thummim have been given him, but it doesn't. He doesn't quite get the concept of, uh, or he's not used to how to use them. He he has his seer, seer stone that he had been using uh, previously uh, to look for things, right? But he'd never really had success with that. Seer stones, or these, these seeing stones, so to speak. Joseph Smith ends up calling it a seer stone. But these seeing stones had been used to find things, but they they had never, the, the folk magic concept had never been presented that they were used for translation. And so this is, this is something different um, that, that Joseph Smith is supposed to use this stone for. And then he's given the Urim and Thummim. So I, I kind of envision him sort of uh, trying to figure this out. You know, the Lord's giving, given me these things, but I don't really know how to use them. I don't really know what to make of this. And here he says that I was enabled to reach the place of my destination, Pennsylvania. I immediately after my arrival there, I commenced copying the characters off the plates. I copied a considerable number of them and by means of the Urim and Thummim, I translated some of them. So it's almost like he he kind of kind of understands how to use these, but hasn't quite figured it out yet. And I see that as in addition to the the idea that everybody is trying to get after these plates is he isn't really able to sit down and translate anything until he can get away to another place. He meets Martin Harris, convinces Martin Harris that that there's really something to this, which is a whole huge story in and of itself. So Martin Harris then takes some of these characters and travels to New York to try to get them certified, so to speak. It's not clear if Joseph Joseph Smith asked him to do this, if Martin Harris just did it on its own, or if the Lord actually commanded him to do it. Um, we really don't we don't get. There's a bunch of different accounts, but it's not really clear exactly what's going on here. In any case, he doesn't just go to Anthon. There's several people that he goes to that he's trying to track down somebody that might know something about these characters. He ends up at Anthon, uh, but there's actually several other uh, professors or scholars that he goes to first. And then 
uh, there's differing accounts again of what happens with Anthon, but we have this idea of him saying he cannot read a sealed book. And again, this idea that this is tied back to an, an Isaiah prophecy is a really fascinating concept that apparently Joseph Smith, after this all happened, he's like thinking it over and realizing sometime later, wow, we just fulfilled a prophecy. That was probably pretty exciting for him, probably needed that sort of boost of confidence at the time with everything that he was going through that that really he was doing what the Lord wanted him to do. Yeah, I think this whole period of Joseph's life is absolutely fascinating because he does have the Yerman Thummim and in Saints in pages 39 and 40, you get a little bit of a glimpse into what the Yerman Thummim was to him. And he's noted as saying, I can see anything they're marvelous, right? <laughs> and yeah. and even so far as that when he hid the plates in the, in the hollow of a log at one point, you know, I'm shortly after he got them, uh, Joseph Smith Sr. had had heard that people were try, trying to find him. And so he runs back and Joseph is, uh, Joseph is away from the plates and he pulls out the Yerman Thummim. He looks in him and it says that he can see the plates. And he says, Joseph looked into the Yerman Thummim and saw that the plates were safe. And so I think this is absolutely fascinating, just the the automaticness of the Urban Thumb's power this is in helping Joseph. GPS lo- location. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, you know, there was another book that uh that I had read and I, I want to get a hold of it. Um I, I got it when I was uh, at BYU and I was at uh, the Provo Library, but it's a, a whole symbolism book of the temple. But there was a quote in there from Joseph Smith who on trial he had noted that when he peered in through the Yerm and Thummim that time and space were obliterated and that he possessed in that moment the eye of God. And I've, I've just always thought that was a fascinating concept, that time and space are obliterated. I'm like, huh, maybe I, that would be really interesting to see what that means, kind of the two fundamental axioms of knowledge of time and space. But one of the things I love about the story of the Yerm and Thummim and the seer stone is that Joseph starts with the Yerm and Thummim and and you're right, how easy did this come from him? But besides the fact that so many people were after him to to get the plates, it took him several years to be able to get those those 116 pages, right? And, you know, what's known as the Book of Lehi. And it's fascinating. It took him so long to get it. But yet when he's finally able to translate with Oliver, he just goes through it in a matter of weeks. He gets the rest of it translated. Yeah. And one of the things that we learn from that is, yeah, Joseph had used the seer stone when he was was peering down. So he used the Yerman Thummim originally. Then he graduates to the seer stone, drops the seer stone in a hat, buries his face down deep in the hat, cut out all the light, see the images appear from the uh, from the stone, and he reads them until for the latter part he doesn't consult anything. Yeah. And he just, and he doesn't even consult the plates. He just stands and dictates it. And you know, Bushman has talked. Several Book of Mormon historians and church historians have talked about well, what, <laughs> what was the the purpose of the plates anyway? <laughs> and I don't think that that question's been answered yet in a in a real sufficient uh, succinct manner. And you know, I look forward to a lot of uh, new uh, discoveries and arguments to that end. But when we, I love this story of Joseph for the fact that I think it so beautifully illustrates how revelation comes to us and how God can often, what the point of revelation is, is that God often provides things as like external stimuli, like the Yerman Thummim, things that kind of get 
the internalness going. And so he, you consult, you know, the things that God has provided, but then you're actually able to then imbue your own items with power to be able to actually make them work. But then there's something within that we really tap into like this inner Urim and Thummim within ourselves. It's like this awakening that we're actually awakening the, uh, the divinity within ourselves to where Joseph didn't need anything. And I think that's such a beautiful way of looking at this, where we see Joseph evolving from what God gives to what he can create to then what Joseph can then find within within himself with this gift that uh, that he's worked with God. So, boy, amazing story. I love the story of the translation of the Book of Mormon. And, you know, of course, he does lose the manuscripts with Martin Harris. And that's a long story. I think we'll be coming to that here shortly in the, the next week or so. Yeah, I mean, you can look at these as, as tools or as like training wheels, right? These train your your mind to work and see things in a certain way and after a time joseph smith's mind was trained um, to see things spiritually he didn't need those tools anymore to do that how that works i really don't know i can only speak in terms of analogies right to have these spiritual artifacts is is kind of an odd it's an odd concept for us to even approach from a 2021 standpoint, right? This, this seems very distant, uh, very strange, arcane to our modern sensibilities, as it were. It's kind of a difficult concept to grasp, except if we maybe accept that we all walk around with a seer stone in our pocket and stare at it all the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> Our cell phones. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and and so what is it that you can pull out of your phone? You can see anything. Can you not? Can you not pull your phone out of your pocket and see anything? Can you not Google any type of uh, place on earth and see it and read almost any type of, get any type of knowledge you're looking for? Uh, it's all there. Connect, communicate with anybody instantly all from this rock seer stone that's in your pocket that we call a cell phone. So I've always thought that was fascinating how that that fit in with that, that, that Joseph's concept of this seer stone seems to have predated or, or, or prophesied, just physically prophesied of the concept of a, of a cell phone you know, 200 years later. I always thought it was kind of interesting. <laughs> it really is. I, 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 I use, I'm on my phone much more than I need to be. Um, it's like, I need to put my seer stone down eventually. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, Dr. Covenant's one thirty says that, you know, these seer stones reveal to us things of lesser kingdoms. And so I always thought that was a, an astute way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. Well, awesome. Well, we're pretty much at the end of, uh, end of this, uh, section. So next week we will be getting into, a, you know, a lot of Martin Harris and we're going to be covering a couple of the, the sections, three, four, and I think five next week. So that'll be a, a great discussion and I, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Awesome. Well, thank you everybody for listening. And uh, if, if you can, share it. If you, uh, if you found something meaningful, share it uh, with family, friends, post it on uh, social media. Send us a message if there's anything you had comments on or thoughts or questions. Uh, we'd love to hear it. In the meantime, we will see you back next week. Until then, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you guys for listening. Bye.